perfect. Begin with, I, I definitely need it. Heavenly Father, I ask that you'd please give me the words to speak today, Lord. Grant me your spirit and your and your presence, and Lord, um, I just thank you so much for the blessing of worshiping here this morning. Um, thank you for your guidance. Just speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Luciano Pavarotti, the great tenor, once, uh, once told this story. When I was a boy, my father, a baker, introduced me to the wonders of song. He urged me to work very hard to develop my voice. Arrigo Pola, a professional tenor in my hometown of Modena, Italy, took me as a pupil. I also enrolled in a teacher's college. On graduating, I asked my father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? Luciano, my father replied, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. I chose one. It took seven years of study and frustration before I made my first professional appearance. It took another seven to reach the Metropolitan Opera. And now I think whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose, we should give ourselves to it. Commitment. That's the key. Choose one chair. How many of you are familiar with the 10,000 hour rule? Right there, right there. Malcolm Gladwell popularized the 10,000 hour rule in his book, Outliers, where he claims that the research shows that if you work towards developing your skill in any area for 10,000 hours, you will become a master and an expert in that skill. And it's not just like rote doing the same thing over and over. It's, it's actually intentionally building your skill set. Um, so like, um, so for instance, always pushing to be more efficient or more effective and, and being, being focused on actually improving as you do your skill. Um, that's what actually gives um, this proficiency. So if you want mastery, you've got to do 10,000 hours. Well, it turns out it's not quite that cut and dry. It actually depends on more than just how much time you put into mastering a skill. Um, Anders Ericsson, a professor of psychology at Florida State University, it is, um, is the one whose research Malcolm Gladwell really used um, in his book. And this research was on deliberate practice. Um, some people have misattributed the rule to Ericsson himself who sought to correct it. He said that Gladwell popularized a simplistic view of our work, which suggests that anyone who has accumulated sufficient numbers of hours of practice in a given domain will automatically become an expert and a champion. 
Erickson went on record clarifying that this is not what his research showed. Within that study, there was no magic number for greatness. Uh, 10,000 hours was not actually a number of hours reached, but an average of the time elites spent practicing. Some practice for much less than 10,000 hours. Others for more than 25,000 hours. Additionally, Gladwell failed to distinguish between the quantity of hours spent practicing and the quality of that practice. And that misses a huge portion of what Erickson actually found in his studies. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that Tim Ferriss actually focuses on in his productivity work. But um, a minute fraction of the 10,000 hours estimated, is estimated to be necessary to attain le high levels of expert performance. Um, so, like, a large meta-analysis in the field found that practice may be responsible for as little as 12% of mastery. Um, and it depends on what domain you're in. So if you're playing chess, practice is responsible for as much as 25% of mastery. If you're playing, um, uh, or if you're playing music, Practice is responsible for as much as 23% of mastery. However, in some other domains, practice is, um, is responsible for as little as 1% or 8% of actual mastery. So it depends on what area you're trying to get mastery in as to whether practice is the most effective way to get it. Um, so if you want to learn quickly, one of the ways is yeah, you can create feedback loops. Um, tracking results and then self-reviewing and critiquing how you're doing. So uh, a lot of times professional runners, for instance, when they're doing, when they're practicing, they'll actually set up video cameras and record themselves running so that they can go back over it in slow motion and see, okay, so I pulled my arm up just a little bit too slow here on my launch, and then I need to be lifting my knees another two inches in order to get better drive um, during the middle. And so they'll actually like record their performance, and then they'll review so that they're always improving and making corrections as they practice. So that's one way to make the practice loop, um, or practice more effective. Another way is to deliberately practice sub-skills that make up a larger skill. So like for instance, I'm a medical school student, so it'll be helpful for me as I prepare to be a doctor to practice getting better at the sub-skills, interviewing, getting better at empathy, getting better at um, diagnosis, getting better at, at like um, enumerating the possibilities, getting better at reading medical literature. So as I work on each of these sub-skills, I'm working towards mastery in medicine, if that makes sense. So like you can break up most skills into sub-skills. Um, an area that I have achieved mastery in is web development and web programming. Um, I started when I was eight years old. And I put a lot of hours <laughs> into learning and into practicing and a lot of deliberate practice, getting better, you know, 
learning new sub-skills in, in the overarching area of programming. I started on, I don't know how many of you remember the Palm Pilots, you know, those little personal digital assistants. I know younger folks in here don't remember them, but that's what I started programming on. And I'd literally go and I'd, I'd type code until I hit the four kilobyte text pad limit. And then I'd go start in another file and I'd include it back in where I wanted that code in the original file. And you know, I'd, I'd just go and I spent hundreds of hours learning the basics of C. And then I asked a friend, what do I learn next? And he said, I want to learn, um, he's like, I, I want to learn more. And he's like, okay, so why don't you start learning HTML and CSS? And so I was like, okay. And so I started learning that. And then he, when I was done, I was like, what do I learn? Do I learn PHP, Java, JavaScript? You know, what, what should I be, Python, what should I be focusing on next? And he said, learn PHP. And so I went and I learned, bought myself books on PHP and started practicing and you know, building projects in my spare time. You know, I started building login systems and I started um, building uh, SQL injection safe queries and I started building um, you know, just basic systems. Um, and then, and then I, I put it to work in a ministry project that I had back in 2011. And I built a website for sharing how to gain a relationship with Jesus. And that was the whole focus of the ministry. But I built the website on a really complicated framework. And throughout the process of doing that, I actually went from being a, an okay programmer to actually being a very good programmer in PHP. I actually learned a lot about how to structure code well because the code I was working with was well-structured. Um, I learned a lot about how to do it, how to do, um, how, what, what were some of the best approaches to the common problems that we, that we face as web developers. And so I spent, um, I then turned that into a business and I learned very quickly that in order to, have a, to be a successful freelancer, you have to know more than just how to write code. You actually have to know how to market yourself, how to write proposals, how to get people, convince people that you can actually solve their problem. <laughs> and so I, I had to go learn another sub-skill. And I'd say I've probably spent 12, 15,000 hours, maybe, practicing and learning how to, how to be a good web developer. And now I'm, I'm at a pretty high level of proficiency and mastery. I'm, I'm falling out of practice now, now that I'm in medical school. But you know, at one point in time, I was really, um, really got quite good at programming, but it was over the course of time building on, you know, sub-skills and deliberately learning. And then um, when you're learning, uh, studies have been done on retention rates when you learn. And, and just sitting and listening in a lecture will give you a retention rate of 5%. Um, if the material is presented with a demonstration, retention is at 30%. However, 
If you discuss the material in a group setting, retention jumps to 50%. If you actually practice it, retention jumps to 75%. But the highest rate of retention comes from teaching it at a whopping 90% retention rate. The best way to learn something is to actually teach it. So, so focusing on one thing, as Luciano Pavarotti said, is the way to success, commitment to that one thing. And then achieving mastery you know, is, involves putting in practice, but not just any kind of practice, but practice that has a review and feedback loop to it. Practice that has, um, has um, practice that is deliberately, intentionally building your skill set. And, and then teaching what you're learning to someone else. Those are like ways in which to build mastery of a concept. And I think this is going to become particularly relevant as we look at our Bible story for today. So turn with me to the scripture reading and we'll go back to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27. This is one of my this is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Psalms, and it's also a very, very nice scripture song. Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And the, and the song goes on and skips all the way to like verse 14 at the end. That um, this, this verse, one thing have I desired of the Lord. Speaking of one chair, one thing, one skill, oftentimes it all comes down to one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. When thou saidst, Seek ye my face, verse 8, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Amen. The story we're going to focus on today is going to illustrate the two main things that we have the option of focusing on in our day-to-day -day experience. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 19. I also like the story as it's related in Mark. It's related in Mark chapter 10. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Starting in verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Here, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and just before this story, what do we find? If you turn to uh, Mark chapter Mark chapter 10, we find the immediate context for this story. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Here's Jesus sitting in the temple, and he blesses the children that are brought to him and, and really encourages the mothers who brought those children, gave them hope, gave them new courage to go out and raise their children to to love and to serve and fear God. And here, this rich young man, is, rich young ruler, is looking at this scene, and he goes, wow, I, I know something's missing in my life. Maybe, just maybe, if Jesus blessed me, like he blessed those little children, Maybe that would fill the emptiness I have. I'm quite good. You know, I, I keep the law. In fact, I, I've studied the law. I, I keep it very faithfully. Always pay my tithes. Always go to church on Sabbath. You know, I, I always come to the feasts at Jerusalem. I always treat my my family and my neighbors right. I, I never, I, I mean, you know what? What am I missing? You know, he, he, he thought everything was all right. He's like, I've got to be saved. You know, God's obviously blessed me. I'm, I'm wealthy. 
Um, God's, God's bestowed his blessings upon me and showed that he favors me. I, I, got, I have to be all right. But something in, deep inside his heart was still missing, feeling the need for something more, something else. And when he saw these children being blessed, he's like, that really, that really touched his inner sense of need. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks the sincere question, what one thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Despite having done all the right things, he thinks he's still not perfectly sure, confident inside that he has an assurance of salvation. Still, there's that nagging sense that something isn't right. And so Jesus then answers him. And he says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. And here he just like tests him. He's like, why, why are you calling me good? And he's trying to help him to think about why he called him good. He's trying to get him to think, you know, am I just talking to a rabbi? Or could I possibly be talking to the Son of God? The Messiah that we've been waiting for for so many generations. Then Jesus goes on to answer his question. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, and this was a sincere response. Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Jesus here states the necessity of obedience for salvation. Obedience to the whole law of God. But when he starts listing the commandments, there were a few commandments that he didn't explicitly mention. One of them was, thou shalt not covet. The other one is, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. These are two commandments he didn't, he didn't test them on yet. And the rich young ruler sincerely says he's kept them, and Jesus stared right into his soul and saw that there was great potential. This young man had real talents, real abilities, that put into the service of God would yield just incredible results. This, this young man could wind up representing God to all those around him and, and really have a big influence on others. This young man was sincere. He really sincerely wanted to do what was right here. 
He sincerely wanted to know what was missing in this salvation picture. And Jesus also saw that what he really needed was a new heart. He needed a humble and contrite heart. One that realized that he owed God his supreme love and allegiance. Because he didn't quite have that. And so Jesus then says the words from which we get this sermon's title. Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. There was one thing that he lacked. Yet, it, that one thing was a vital principle. One that he couldn't ignore safe, with any safety. He needed the love of God. But in order to do that, the supreme love for self must first be surrendered. In order to fill him with God's love, he had to first stop loving himself, who he was, his position, his honor, his wealth, what that wealth meant, what that wealth brought. He had to stop loving that more. And he had to make a choice then. What one thing was he going to pursue? Which one chair was he going to sit in? Christ gave him a test. Gave him a real choice. He could have the heavenly treasure and be called a son of God. He could be a co-heir with Christ of the eternal riches and glory of heaven. Not just, not just some worldly approbation, not just some fame, notoriety for a few years with, you know, a few dollars, but the eternal riches of heaven. He could have the holiness of God in his life. God was offering him the chance to learn from Jesus and to accept the holiness, the obedience that Jesus was offering to him. He had the opportunity to be a disciple of Christ. We might have had the opportunity to read about the rich young ruler in the book of Acts. Who knows, if he had started following Jesus then, they might, have even been, they might have even voted him instead of Matthias into the position that Judas had once held. You know, he had opportunities he had no true concept of. But he did quickly discern the cost. He quickly discerned that it would require 
taking up the cross of self-sacrifice and following Jesus wholly with his whole heart, with his whole life, with everything that was his. Or he could pick worldly greatness. He could pick the fame that came with being a ruler and associating with the Pharisees and being an important man and making decisions in the community. He could have riches and everything that riches could buy for him. Um, and riches was more than just having money. It was about the fame. It was about the people you were able to associate with. It, riches was a lot more. It was about recognition. It was about worldly greatness. So he could choose this worldly greatness option, or he could choose a supreme love for God and the heavenly treasure that came with it. When comparing the two, they're worlds apart. One of them is like tiny, tiny, small. The other one, it's like an inconspicuous speck. The other one is a huge, huge weight of glory and treasure. Almost as big a difference as the sun to the moon. But he let his worldly perspective cause him to have a total solar eclipse. <laughs> Here he was standing on earth, viewing things from earth's perspective, and that little moon of worldly treasure and earthly greatness came into his sight and completely obscured the glory and indescribable greatness and majesty of the heavenly treasure. He experienced a true solar eclipse. <laughs> Jesus had pretty much given him the same choice that Joshua gave the children of Israel. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods that your father served on the other side of Jordan or the gods of the Amalekites in whose land ye dwell. <laughs> but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was the choice that God was giving through Jesus to the rich young ruler. Choose ye this day. Hebrews 4 says, now is the day of salvation. Today. Don't put it off. It's today is the day of salvation. Actually, it might be Hebrews 3. Amen. Jesus yearned for his conversion. I love the picture that we find in the Desire of Ages, too, where it talks about how Jesus looked into his soul, and he had just placed this option on the table. And he had just given him the choice. And he looks at him, watching him, hoping against hope, just longing for him to choose that heavenly treasure. Longing for him to be converted and experience what it meant to have the love of God 
in his heart. Longing for him to make the right choice. You can just see Jesus' face. He's like, please, please. You have no idea how stupidly simple this choice is. Just don't look at it from your perspective. The here and now present fame versus the future reality of eternal treasure. Just don't look at it from your perspective. See this one with the eye of faith. And this, my friends, is why the choice will always be foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. This is why the wisdom of God is the foolishness, is foolishness to men. It's because it requires us to see things from a different perspective. It requires us to see things as God sees them and put things into the real perspective of how they really are. The inconspicuous speck of worldly greatness and fame versus the unmeasurable greatness of eternal treasure and riches. We just need to see from a perspective besides our own. We have to see with the eye of faith the things we don't see now, but we know because he's promised will be a reality. The rich young ruler hovered here in this moment of decision. He quickly realized what was involved in this choice and became sad. The Bible tells us, if he had realized the value of the offered gift, of the opportunity to spend the next several years and months with Jesus, the opportunity to have an eternal treasure and reward waiting for him, the opportunity to become a co-laborer with Christ, to win souls for Jesus, to help them realize the incredible love of God for them. If he had realized the value of the gift being offered him, he would have taken it without hesitation, immediately. But the temporal advantages of riches eclipsed the heavenly offer. The cost of eternal life seemed too great. And he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. You know, there's a quote in Steps to Christ where the servant of the Lord says, what do we give when we give Christ all? A sin-polluted heart 
to cleanse, a broken life to mend. And some think this too great a sacrifice to make. I am ashamed to hear it spoken, ashamed to write it. It's a ridiculous choice. But yet so many make that same choice. To him, his claim that he kept the commandments, Christ showed to be a baseless lie. For riches were his idol, and he was breaking the first half. The world was first in his affections. The desire for riches and possessions and covetousness filled his heart. He loved the temporal gifts that God had given him more than he loved their giver. Things seen eclipsed the reality of things unseen. And this story is really an object lesson. And it's recorded in the scriptures for our benefit. You know, God's rule of conduct is obedience. Always has been, always will be. But not just legal, ritualistic forms. But part of the life, obedience that comes from a heart renewed by grace and filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a legal form or an outward conformance. Only those who say, all I have and all I am is thine are truly called by God sons and daughters. All should consider what it means to say, no, I cannot give you all to Christ. You know, Christ said, you only lack one thing. There's one chair you need to be sitting in. There's one object that deserves your supreme affection. And it's me. All the rest falls into place and takes care of itself when first things come first. Self-surrender, really, is the substance of the teachings of Christ. Because in order to sit in that chair, to have that one purpose, to have that singleness of, of purpose and mind, requires giving up self. My own way. My own fame, riches. Counting that, as the Apostle Paul says, as dumb, saying, you know what? That's not worth anything. I'm going to instead use the eye of faith to see the insurmountable riches of glory in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to pick that and make that my first focus, my last focus, and my best 
focus. When Christ's followers give back to the Lord his own, they're really just accumulating treasure that's realized when they hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. What is the joy of thy Lord? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God? Who, for the joy that was set before him? What joy was Christ's joy? The joy of seeing souls saved. The joy of seeing souls, people who are redeemed by his blood. The joy of seeing people realize how much he cared for them and what he had in store, just wanting to give it to them. This was the joy, seeing people accept that gift of salvation. And then when we accept his gift, we become co-laborers with him. And then we get to work for the salvation of souls. And then we get to experience that same joy. Ah, it's just amazing. The joy of seeing souls eternally saved. And it's the reward of all that put their feet in the footprints of him who said, follow me. One thing thou lackest. One thing. But it was the most important thing. It's like Jesus said of Mary, that she has chosen the better thing. One thing. Putting the Lord Jesus Christ first, last, and best giving him the full affection, allegiance, and love due him. One thing, the psalmist says, have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, eternal riches and reality, co-heirs with Christ, Amen. to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Verse 8, When thou saidst, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. David chose that one chair. <laughs> that one thing that's worth more than everything we can be offered here and there. David made that choice. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. One thing. One thing that absorbs focus. One thing that absorbs practice. Commitment. Attention. It's not programming. It's not a career. It's not riches. It's not anything this world can offer. The one thing worth having 
is Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the one thing that I want to commit to seeking today. And if that's your prayer too, if you want to join with the psalmist saying, one thing have I desired of the Lord. You know, you said unto me, seek my face, and my heart said, I will seek thy face. If you want to, if you want to have that experience, Join with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for for giving us just one thing to focus on in the plan of salvation, and that is knowing you. That is loving you. That is you one thing, Lord. But that one thing costs everything. Hopes, dreams, wealth, worldly recognition and fame. Lord, that one thing is worth it. And we choose that one thing today. Father, Grant us your spirit and help us to live focused on the one eternal reality that should eclipse all earthly, all earthly accolades. Lord, keep us focused on you. For we pray this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.